Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the England show on The Athletic. Coming up today, we will look ahead to England's Euro 2020 last eight tie against Ukraine in Rome. Uh, Flo Lloyd-Hughes, The Athletic's Jack Pitbrook and Adam Crafton are with us. We'll talk to Jordan Campbell uh, later on as well, who was at Hamden to see Ukraine uh, beat Sweden. Off there, he's, he's already had some in, interesting things to say to me, Adam, about uh, English arrogance, blaming you for, for English arrogance as well, suggesting that you're, you're making the suggestion that players could be rested for Ukraine. Rotated is the word. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll come on to that uh, in uh, a little while. Adam and Jack, though, have, uh, have contributed on a, on a massive read, reflecting uh, the night that everything came together. Um, and it did. Everything came together, Jack. It almost couldn't have gone better in the sense that it, Southgate could not have been more vindicated for the decisions that he's made, not just over the course of this tournament, but over the last few years. You know, the um, the decision to change the formation mid-tournament, which is something which is incredibly rare for an England manager to do, and to do it after a successful group stage in which England took seven points and conceded no goals. And picking what was, we have to be honest, a dreadfully unpopular team on Tuesday afternoon, which no fan, literally no fans would have chosen. And Southgate, Southgate said afterwards he would have been dead if it didn't work. And so for it to, um, for the game to go almost precisely in keeping with what Southgate would have expected and planned for, is just like the biggest vindication I can, I can imagine for him. And just really a credit to all the work that he's done. And what we tried to convey in the piece was, the fact that it's really, really difficult at times like this and players are grumbling about training and they're grumbling about selection. And if it hadn't gone wrong, then this Southgate would have got battered all week for his treatment of Grealish and Foden and not playing 4-3-3 and not going for it and all the rest of it. So, um, yeah, we just tried to, we just wanted to get across what a delicate balancing act Southgate's been doing. Flo, you, you are quite keen to point out that you were the only one on this pod uh, who was full of confidence before the Germany game. Yeah, it's a funny one because, like Jack said, I had friends who don't get that emotional or upset about England who were absolutely raging about that starting eleven. Really, really annoyed, saying this is the best opportunity we've ever had to win a Euros, to get really late in the Euros. And he's he's stuffed it all up with this with this starting eleven. And I was just hashtag trust the process throughout. I thought, you know, we know this is what he's about. We know he's always been like this, as Jack said. And he's not going to just risk it all in one game. And the bench had its impact that we thought it was going to have. He had all the ammo he needed to change the game and it worked out. So, yeah, I do feel fairly smug to be the one who thought it was all going to work out in the end. But obviously, it's a matter of inches. If that Muller goal had gone in, 
extra time, penalties, England could have lost. So actually, the whole thing could have gone entirely different. And that's where I was going to come to next, Adam. I mean, you know, we've we've worked together a lot and you know it's very unlike me to introduce a negative aspect to the discussion, but there are fine margins here. There really are fine margins. But but in most sport, there are fine margins and you need a little bit of luck along the way. Yeah, you're right. Everyone's talking about the Muller miss, understandably, because it was probably the moment of the tournament so far in terms of just the, the sheer drama of it. But, you know, don't forget as well, Jordan Pickford made two brilliant saves, one from Werner in the first half, one from Havertz in the second half. You know, as important, probably more important in some ways because England would have gone a goal down. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's just what what, uh, what Flo says about, you know, trusting the process. And I think I'm probably quite reflective of that sort of traditional reactionary England fan in that I have like three states of emotional being as an England fan, one of which is just bored and disinterested between tournaments, then raging when my favourite players aren't picked or the team is not being particularly expansive at a tournament, and then just utterly elated and on the hype as soon as we hit into a quarterfinal. And I think that's where most of the country is at now. I don't really think, I don't think most of the country really wants any nuance now. I think it is just everyone is now a little bit Russia 2018-y and really, you know, looking at the games that we may have in store, plural, hopefully, uh, and just being super excited now with, you know, a set of players that are just incredibly likeable um, and a manager who... You know, I still think that interview that he gave on the BBC within 15 minutes of the match finishing was one of the most extraordinary live interviews I've, I can actually remember from someone involved in sport. Yeah, I think if anything, actually, people are now disappointed that the new series of Love Island isn't matching up to Russia 2018 levels because that's actually the more <laughs> the bigger frustration, I think, definitely on social media is the lack of uh, lack of excitement on that front. Flo, which um, England player do you consider to be the most Love Islandy? Oh, Grealish didn't even take me 0.5 seconds. Really? 100% Jack Grealish. I was thinking, yeah. I think Ben White, since he's sort of got all those tattoos on his arms now, um, is screaming <laughs> Love Island. Um, but anyway, now we've covered the big issues. <laughs> yeah, I, I spent most of uh, of. 2018 World Cup in a in a podcast battle at the top of the podcast charts with Love Island, which is, which is a battle I, I was never going to win. To be to be honest with you, um, what th- there are a couple of things from from the other night that that really stick in my mind, which is the joy of the England players at certain times and the pain of the England players at certain times. So there were two things, Jack. Pre-match, England came out to to warm up. And on the radio commentary that I was doing, uh, John Murray described him as looking like he was on a beach. He was kind of skipping across Declan Rice, waving, big grin on his face. And we found out afterwards it was because Mark Noble and his son and James Corden were all in a box and he'd spotted them. And this was like the first thing before even kicking a ball in, in the warm-up. The joy and excitement on his face was just lovely to see. And then the pain of Raheem Sterling sinking to his knees when he thought he had cost England with the Thomas Muller chance, I thought encapsulates both how relaxed they are at the start, but also understandably what it means for them. And we've accused England players in the past, Jack, of not caring. It was emotionally exhausting to be there. I don't want to sound like I'm complaining about being there because I'm not, but it was really draining. You know, there's when you go... And this is true whether you're a fan or a reporter. When you go to a football match that big, it really takes it out of you. It's uh, it's like a, you know, it's uh, 
you could see how how much it took out the players. And that, that moment with Sterling was incredible because he, he obviously collapsed. And I think somebody circulated a clip on social media earlier of, I've forgotten which player it was. I think it was Trippier who sort of grabs him. Trippier yeah. lifting Sterling up after that moment. And then I remember Trippier sprinting over and just basically screaming at the England defence, telling them to focus and not get, not get caught out like that again. And... Um, Pickford, I remember running, kind of bounding off and charging, charging away and celebrating. Uh, so after, at that moment, so yeah, it was a, a hugely emotionally exhausting day for everyone. I do love, you know, just watching those clips back, and then you also see the way Henderson celebrates with Southgate for the second goal, because I think you know at times watching them in the group stage, well, obviously like a lot of it was like quite slow and ponderous. You sort of fall into this trap as a fan where you're like. Are they really up for it? Do, you know, do they do they do they care that much? Not not it's not do they care because we know they care, but are they that invested in it? And then you see almost that bolt of electricity between the first from the first goal onwards. There was just this greater zip and intensity and this real belief and electricity that was coursing around the stadium. And you're right. Well, you, and, you know, Pickford was the one that stood out. You know, Muller puts it wide. He's then charging out, bounding around the goal. Declan Rice is like geeing up the fans. And on some levels, I'm thinking, God, can they all just calm down for five minutes and see it and see it through? But on the other hand, it was an amazing encapsulation of actually just look how much these guys give a shit. Look how much they care. And actually, we are all just feeling exactly the same thing here. And I didn't think this set of players were like so affected, I suppose, by that sense of beating Germany. I thought that was like an older generation thing, but it was clearly huge to them. Yeah, there was a nervous energy that I was feeling that you could see them. And that's obviously where the mistake came from is I think Sterling was a bit like, oh my God, I've just scored what could be one of the most historic goals in the history of English football. And I was physically shaking at that moment. Like I couldn't control my body. And I was working in Trafalgar Square in the fan zone and it was just utterly unreal and you could feel that like like Adam was saying you could feel they were feeling the same as all the fans and I think it was that moment where you were like oh they want it just as much as we want it they're fans too and I think for years there's been this separation of the players and the fans across all of football and it's I think England have done really well from Southgate all the way up you know to the marketing and social media team to build that connection back and I think that match was just you know, a complete definition of that, really. And I think that 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 point about emotional energy is just completely inseparable from the fact that there was a proper crowd in. Like it was only, I mean, it was only what twenty five thousand more than we got in the group stage games, and yet it felt like it, it felt like ten times that. It was, it, and it didn't feel at all like a half capacity crowd or a limited crowd. You know, you could barely see any empty seats, to be honest. And it it didn't feel like we were short of noise or. Or anything, and you could tell the players fed into that. And one thing I actually really liked and admired about the England crowd on Tuesday is that there were moments in the group stage, particularly in games that were not very entertaining, or the fans wanted to see more from England, where you know Stones would pass the ball to another England defender, and the fans would start going, would get really antsy because they didn't like that and they wanted to get it up there, and they were just. They were, I, think, I think the fans were a bit impatient in the group stage and I think that conveyed a bit of anxiety through to the players. That didn't happen at all on Tuesday. I thought the fans were fully patient. And even though, even if the fans would rather play a more attacking system, I don't think they conveyed any sense of frustration 
with Southgate or even with the players themselves. And I think that was hugely helpful to how England did play. Just on that, there's a great piece, a tactical piece on The Athletic at the moment, written by Tom Warville and, and Mark Carey. And they talked to the assistant manager at Borussia Dortmund, René Maric, about England. And, and he highlights Kane, Rice and Phillips as players that should get huge credit. I mean, Adam, I, I kind of think Phillips has got a fair amount of credit, particularly for his, his performance in the in the first game against Croatia. K- Kane and Rice have, have got less credit, but from someone within the game, he is highlighting those three tactically. I defer to him on Kane um, because I, I, don't, I don't agree. With Declan Rice, yeah, it was interesting. I think after the first, after the group stage, he was probably one of the players I was looking at thinking... I'm still not 100% sure what you're doing. I know you're doing good things because everyone, you know, everyone in the game says you're doing good things. But as a fan watching on, I was like, well, do we really need two of them? Obviously, you do when you play a big nation like Germany and, uh, or France or whoever it is. I thought Phillips was outstanding again against Germany. Just the, the intensity and pace at which he does things, I think, makes such a difference to the way that England play. Everything he does is with zip whether it's a tackle or whether it's you know the speed of his pass or the speed of pressing I really like it I don't, you don't see it enough, I don't think you see it from enough players just do everything at, at speed Rice I think is far more cl- intelligent positionally um, I think that's clearly you know what he is doing well uh, and it's hard as well you know I think where it's interesting with Rice is that he's one, probably one of the few players in that team who's played a five-man defense most of the season because West Ham do that you know that five two three system he'll have played he'll have known that role inside out and he also picked up a really early yellow card you know when you had him on a yellow card within 10 minutes you know you're thinking surely he's not going to see this game out and he and he did but it's funny, it's funny you know it's like what we're saying about Southgate being vindicated and a genius now you remember Man United played PSG at Old Trafford back in November Fred had a really early yellow card Solskjaer left him on then one sort of soft booking later and everyone's killing killing the manager and it could have very easily happened with Rice and Phillips both on a booking. So I don't know if I'm missing something. You know, cl- clearly I am if the Borussia Dortmund assistant manager is saying that Harry Kane is doing great things tactically. Um, are there things I'm not seeing that, that he was doing? Do we just think the goal is going to make him take off? Was there anything you saw, Jack, at the stadium, which you thought, yeah, that's, that's what Kane's good at. That's what he's offering to the team. That's bringing space for Sterling and Saka. Well, it actually reminded me quite a lot of his performance against Scotland in the sense that he didn't look physically sharp. He was—he literally barely touched the ball in the first half until that chance, which he um, tried to take it past Neuer, took a heavy touch, and got tackled by Hummels. Um, and but then in games like that, and you know we've seen this you know, 29 Champions League final happens actually quite a lot for Tottenham now, where Kane is can't really get in the game as a number nine. He's losing physical challenges. Um, he got—he got flattened by Hummels early in the second half and nearly had to limp off. And then over time, he realises that, in fact, he has to come a little bit deeper to get involved in the game. And to be honest, and I did think he, from after he came back on following that, that moment where he nearly got subbed off, he did get better and he did seem to grow in, a, grow in influence in a slightly deeper role. Maybe it's just that Germany were getting tired as well. They couldn't, Hummels couldn't stick quite as tight to him. There's a little bit more room for him to operate in. And then, of course, he was involved in the build-up for the Sterling goal and then scored a goal himself. Whether it will be a launch for him later in the tournament, I mean... Let's wait and see. I mean, I'd I'd love to say yes, and I'd love to say this. You know, he's got the belief and the confidence and the momentum and everything, but he still doesn't look right physically. 
you know, he, I thought he did look right in the in the Czech Republic game, funnily enough, but then seemed to take a step back in the other direction for the Germany game. So uh, I wouldn't be too bullish about Saturday on that basis. Yeah, I mean, I a bit like how I feel about Southgate's starting 11. I'm kind of just willing to go with it with Kane. Um, I've been impressed with his defensive work and I just feel like what will happen, what happened on Tuesday will happen again. He'll be in the right place at the right time and come up with the goods. So I haven't been that frustrated, but I can understand when he's had such a good season and you've seen what he can do over the last few years, why it's disappointing to see the way he's playing now. But I'm not too stressed about it. I would still, I would still start him and I feel like he'll, yeah, he'll be in the right place at the right time. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This is The England Show from The Athletic. Keep up to date with all of our Euro 2020 podcasts and writing by following us at The Athletic UK. I just want a couple on Southgate the man and then we'll look ahead to the game in Rome on Saturday. What what moved you so much about the post-match interview, Adam, that you've already mentioned? I think it was the pause. I was looking at the big screen and I saw Dave Seaman up there and, you know, I can't... For the teammates that played with me, I can't change that. So that's always going to hurt. But what's lovely is that we've given people uh, uh, another day to remember. Um, and now we've got to go and do it in Rome. And I don't know what it is. Every time I watch it, I've watched it back about 15 times now. And each time my bottom lip just sort of wobbles a little bit. I found it incredibly emotional. And I think it, it was almost just like this admission of this residual guilt that he clearly all this time on still still matters to him and still feels to him. And, it, you know, an amazing column this morning by Alan Shearer in The Athletic. Let me read what Alan said. So, so, so Gareth Southgate post-match said, for teammates that played with me, I can't change that. That's always going to hurt when talking about his penalty miss in, in 96. To which uh, Alan has, has written today, Gareth, I've never once looked at you and blamed you. I've never thought of you as the man who cost me or who cost our England team a trophy and a winner's medal at the European Championship 25 years ago. I've never considered you a failure for taking a penalty against Germany and missing. There is not a spark in my brain or an atom in my body that thinks in those terms. I could have delivered that in a different way for comic effect, but I won't. And I hate that you might suspect otherwise i can feel my eyes sort of watering a bit as as you as you as you read that because it's such a national moment and for, for him to you know to basically i just felt like he bared a little bit of his soul to what was it probably more than 15 million people watching on the bbc at that time i thought it was a really brave thing to do the reaction to it as well from sheer is fantastic it made me feel so bad for doubting him like the text messages I was sending 25 minutes before that interview about Gareth Southgate, you know, um, I felt so bad. I've got them. Jack's got them. Jack's got them. <laughs> half, half my contact book have got them. Um, 
and half the country was sending them. The whole country is going to be pretending forevermore that they never once doubted Gareth Southgate. When after 70 minutes, I would say that three quarters of the people uh, watching probably were. Uh, but that's OK. That's the point of football. We're meant to be irrational watching football and hope that, the, you know, the guy who makes the decision is the smartest guy in the room and he's proven to be so. Yeah, it hurts because uh, in retrospect for Adam, I'm guessing, Flo, it hurts because Southgate has, has always uh, been a decent man. There you go. He's a decent man. That that's that's the and and I mean that in the most complimentary of terms. Yeah, and I think what's really sad about Southgate is he is kind of the the walking embodiment of nice guys don't always win. And I think what would be so great about England's potential success is that it changes that narrative because he has spent a lot of his career being a loser. And I think it would be great for him to be able to change that. And I think some people don't like Southgate because they think he's too plain and he he's too risk averse. But I think he's, by showing more emotion, by showing more of his personality, he's opening up that side of things. And you think, well, no wonder he doesn't want to take any risks because he's seen some shit. Like, he's been there and he didn't have a good time. So he's trying to, you know, he's trying to manage that with this incredible job that he's trying to do. I think for a lot of people before before Tuesday, the take on Southgate would have been something along the lines of, great bloke, so much admiration for him. I love the way that he talks. I love the way that he represents our national team and is and speaks for English football in a way that nobody else really has the moral authority to do. And I love his commitment to diversity and inclusion and giving agency back to the young players and uh, helping a new generation of England fans believe in the England team again, and all this stuff. But I've got my doubts about him as a coach. I think that I think there was a lot of that, and that, and now for the first time, really, people can say, well, you know, as well as all that great stuff about him as a person, he's actually quite good at the managing stuff as well. You know, this, this yesterday or not, not yesterday, Tuesday, whenever it was, was the first time really that he's done anything like this, like tactically masterminded a win against a really good team in a really important game. It's never happened before. You know, we. We didn't beat anyone good in 2018, uh, but now we have. And I just think that is, for the first time, really, that I think the national sense of Southgate, the, the coach, is not quite at the level as the national sense of Southgate, the man, but it's getting closer. Um, and that's not something that people were necessarily expecting to happen this summer. My sense before the game is that I'm so happy this man is leading this group, but I'm not sure I want him coaching this group. I think that was my where I was at with Southgate. And I was like... You know, he's give, we're getting a lot of the compromise without any of the payoff. Is it all worth it sort of thing? And, you know, he's proven us wrong. I still think they could have won by playing more, more aggressively and expansively. You know, just because they've won this way doesn't necessarily mean they wouldn't have won with a few more creative players on the pitch. Um, I am standing by... Um, that text message. Um, <laughs> like, like Germany weren't very good. There's a great look on Jack's face that he realises he has all the power in this pod and presumably future pods to be able to just drop some of those messages in whenever he whenever he so chooses. Well, it wasn't just Adam. I mean, Adam's right. But Adam, if you can speak for this huge swathe of the English football public who were initially... Southgate critical, Southgate sceptical, however we want to phrase this. Do you accept, on behalf of all those people, 
that the three four three was correct and that he can't just play all my favourite players at the same time because it'd be more more fun that way. You know, I'm going to admit when it went to one nil, and I was I was really quite resentful about three minutes before one nil because I, I was just my my feeling was just we've got all these creative players on the bench and what if this occasion just passes us by and Germany get this late goal? You know, I don't think that's an unreasonable position. And Southgate said afterwards, you know, he'd have been dead and, and he's right. Then when we scored, part of me was, how much do I want to be right here? Yeah, look, I mean, he, he got the result, so therefore he's right. England are in the quarterfinals of the Euros and have a fantastic chance to win it. You know, it'd be ridiculous to say he got it, he got it wrong. All I'm saying is I think he might have got it right by also starting Phil Foden or Jack Grealish, um, which we'll never know. Purely because every, you know, I felt in the even in the first half, whenever England pressed or got or really got after Germany, they looked really vulnerable. I didn't think it was a good German side, and you know, in the that, that last fifteen minutes was probably actually the most aggressive that England played. So really, if we'd have played like that throughout the game, we could have won five one. Well, I, I I sort of half agree with you in the sense that. I think that the three-four-three was definitely integral to how England how England won the game in the sense that it allowed them to to exert kind of one v one pressure on Germany, pin pin back the German wing backs, which was really the crucial thing, and stop Germany from doing to England what Germany had done to Portugal beforehand. So I think the three-four-three was integral in kind of pinning back, wearing down Germany, and eventually picking them off. That said, I do think you're probably right that England could have played say Foden instead of Saka. And got more or less a similar result. I don't think Saka was quite as influential as he was, as he was in the Czech Republic game. So theoretically, he could have played Foden instead of Saka. That said, I don't think he could have played Grealish instead of Saka because it was the introduction of a fully fresh Grealish on 65 minutes against tiring German defenders that was so important. And really, I think, another, another decision that paid off. With Saka, as England were really nervous early on, particularly 10, first 10, 15 minutes, I thought he was the one that just had that little bit less fear, that little bit of innocence. To, you know, he took a couple of players on, he had a bit of a dribble. I think he calmed, he actually, by being a little bit inventive and brave, sort of calmed the situation, helped calm the situation down. I'm sure there's something smart that the data guys can come up with about how all his running tied out Germany and then Grealish could come on and make the most of it. This may bring the mood down a little bit. Uh, I don't know. But we talked right at the start about needing luck in all of this flow and England have been very lucky the way this tournament has been structured because they've had every game at Wembley so far and it it's hard it's hard not to disagree with Chris Gunter's comment about this tournament being shambolic when it comes to you know where teams are playing and traveling and so on and so forth um how much does it change for England in your opinion that they're not at Wembley for this quarterfinal? I think it would have been a game changer and obviously no disrespect to Ukraine, but this is the reality of things, if it would have been England-Germany in Rome. I mean, we talked about the impact the fans had on Tuesday and they're not going to be able to recreate that. Like, you know, whoever gets to go, whoever's going to take the risk or can afford it or whatever. Like I've seen a couple of people on Instagram with tickets offering to sell them affordable 80 quid you know for for a euros quarterfinal to see england but it's just impossible to travel at the moment especially if you're a fan and you can't get any um any sort of exemption or anything so i think it's going to be really really difficult atmosphere wise to get that same emotion to get that same energy and it'll be interesting to see how that impacts england but i think the way the draws worked out i think you know luck will still be on the side in the sense that 
they are on the quote-unquote easy side of the draw. I think the worry for me is not Ukraine, it's it's Denmark. The possibility of Denmark, I think, in the semi-final is, is more worrying about... It. But that will be back at Wembley. So I think... Traveling, I think I can't remember who mentioned it in their piece about the the superstition, the superstitious nature of players, and and now traveling to Rome kind of upsets the balance. I can't remember who was talking about that in their athletic piece, but I think that's a big factor. Less the atmosphere in the fans, but disrupting the vibes and the St George's routine. Yeah, the routine, the St George's Park little Big Brother comfort house that they have, disrupting that I think is a big one. I think this kind of needs to get over it though, don't they? I mean. You know, when you look at England's route in this tournament compared to, you know, I've been covering Belgium quite closely. Belgium's group stage, they had an away game in Russia, an away game in Denmark, then played in um, in Copenhagen again against Finland. Then they went to the the desert to play in Seville against Portugal, losing a number of players across the, the process. Then they go to Munich. I mean, they've basically had like a Champions League style tournament while England have been at home the whole time. So... I think England have had it as good as you could possibly want it. And the one time they're having to travel is probably as kind of fixture as they could have hoped for in the quarterfinal stage of a competition. I think that, you know, I think I don't think it's that bad as well either for them to just get out of England for a few days, a lot of hype going on, get them in their cocoon. And also, you know, players do enjoy, I think as well, you know, that bonding that you get from a trip and that idea of a bit of an expedition as well. So I think it's quite good for them. And then you come back to Wembley for for the semi-final and maybe the final. Jack? There is part of me that wishes that England were... This game should really have been against Spain if things had gone normally. Like Spain would have won that group instead of Sweden. And then presume, you know, if Spain had been in Ukraine in the last 16 game late on Tuesday night, then it would have been England-Spain. Although we've got, you know, uh, Alvaro Morata's finishing in those first two games to thank for England having a slight, slightly... Well, in theory, should be a slightly easier game. In terms of how it goes, it, rem- it does remind me a little bit of in 2018 when England had this emotionally exhausting last 16 win against Colombia in Moscow, which I think was a hugely transformative moment for the Southgate tenure and also I think for the national mood. And then the, the quarterfinal against Sweden was actually a much more quiet, calm event against, to be honest, not as good a team as Colombia. And the dynamic does remind me a bit of that. Like, will England be able to, because in 2018, I thought England managed, you know, coming down from the emotional high of Croatia into playing quite an effective and efficient game against Sweden really well. And that's what they have to do this time, because if they get too confident and emotional and wrapped up in, oh, we didn't we beat Germany, it was fantastic. They can definitely lose to Ukraine. Like, Ukraine have got more than enough good players. I don't think the crowd will be on England's side at all. And uh, it wouldn't take too much of a slip up for um, you know for England to for England to get beaten. So it's a, managing that emotional transfer will be interesting. Are you basing the crowd not being um, on England's side on the fact that there'll be more Ukraine there, or or are you basing it on how Eurovision goes every year and basically <laughs> everyone everywhere hates we go, us. In Europe, yeah, everyone <laughs> yeah, hates us. Both, a, a, yeah. a bit of all three, and also people like an underdog. You know, I think you're right, Jack. Though about the, how they deal with the emotional high. You know, we, we've spoken so much about how England come back from lows over, over the years. But, you know, one of the, one of the hardest things people say in sport, because um, I, I have not had an emotional high in sport um, as a participant, is, you know, how do you deal with, 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 a, with a huge win that you've not really had that experience of before? And when I interviewed Roberto Martinez before this tournament started, he was talking about when Belgium beat Brazil 
at the World Cup in 2018 in the quarterfinal. They then only had a few days before they then played France in the semi-final. And he said, you know, one of the things he looked back on, apart from the, you know, the physical drain, was that he just felt his players just stayed too high after that. And, and like you don't you can't you can't you don't want to knock their confidence down because you want your players to be confident. And it's very, very difficult. It's not something that sports scientists can measure. Um, it's not something that the metrics have the answer to. It's just it, it's 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 all about sportsmen being consistent, performing at a high level of consistency while dealing with all this noise around them. And that was why I thought it was really interesting what we were talking about before, that last 10 minutes where you know, you saw that reaction from Sterling and Trippier and Rice getting the fans up in Pickford. That was, are they dealing with this in a in the way that you want elite sportsmen to deal with it? And yeah, it worked against Germany, but I do think that's one of the things Southgate will have been really working on the last couple of days. Less probably about tactics now and more, you know, if, you, if your heads are right playing Ukraine, you win that game. I think he did say as well, when, when he came out to do his post-match, he did say that, um, in the changing room, they were all going for it, blasting music, and he had to go and say, like, everyone needs to chill out. And I think he's already showing those signs, but, I mean, our heads were gone as fans after that game, so I don't know what they must have felt. And we'll never know if volleyball in the swimming pool at St George's Park yesterday was a good idea or a bad idea. We'll, we'll never know. I was speaking to um, someone close to Jordan Pickford yesterday, and, and they were saying how... You know, Pickford has spoken openly about hiring a sports psychologist over the past uh, 18 months or so and the impact that that's had on his game. And, you know, on one level, it was about calming him down, you know, from some of the mistakes he's made and uh, some of the negative experiences. But one of the things that he's also been working on is how do you deal with those moments after you've made a great save or the, that big chance goes wide and, and, th- and things like that? Because, you know, as I said before, dealing with success is in sport is actually almost as important with dealing with failure because you've got to go and do it again. And this is why I wonder whether he might bring in some uh, some different players, maybe some cooler heads for the for the Ukraine game, just players who are maybe less kind of running off the buzz of that first game. I think Henderson is a really obvious selection for this game, not just because Rice and Phillips are on yellows, but obviously Henderson, you know, he's won a Premier League, won a Champions League, he's done everything in the game. And he's just a very experienced, cool head. Maybe maybe Mason Mount as well. He's a big game player. Maybe Phil Foden. Just to give in, just so that England have got a little bit of fresh, clear thinking on the pitch on Saturday. Well, we'll come on to your starting 11s for the game uh, in just a moment. But let's talk Ukraine. They knocked Sweden out in the last 16. That was a game that took place at Hampden Park and it was watched by the athletic Scottish writer Jordan Campbell. And I spoke to him earlier. Again, space for Zinchenko. It's a good ball in and there it is! Artem Dovbik with his first international goal and surely, surely a historic victory for the Ukraine. So, Jordan, you were, you were in Hamden watching this game. What did you make of Ukraine? I thought they were pretty one-paced, to be honest. Like, I know Shevchenko moved to a, a back three, um, so maybe that had more to do with it, because when you watched them in the group stage, the, their games were pretty exciting. I don't think they looked great, but they were always exciting games. Um, but then I think what you've seen against Austria, where they, they struggled to really create much, was uh, against Sweden, like, pretty flat 4-4-2 just set up to soak up the pressure and Ukraine you know, most of the possession was pretty limited to 
playing it across the back three, um, trying to get it to Zinchenko down the left. But for a lot of the time, they couldn't really get get it to him. But obviously, the two times they did to get a goal, two goals from it. So it'll be interesting to you know whether Shevchenko sticks with that against England, and then obviously whether England then match up against it. But you know they've got players that can hurt can hurt teams clearly like, you know Yarmolenko even Chaparenko as well number, the number 10 that played you know, they, they, they were the two sort of main threats they like to try and switch the ball quite quickly Yarmolenko sort of get given a bit of, a bit of freedom to really you know drift it to the right and then cut inside and that's when he obviously looks at his best so aye, no, they've definitely got threats but I, I, don't, I wasn't overly impressed by them on the ball One of the difficulties of doing this tournament is that uh, for the most part we are remote and therefore you can't really get that feeling of talking to just bumping into some fans, journalists from all the different countries that you go and witness when you're at these tournaments, when you're all in, in one place. You, by being at Hamden, might have had a chance to talk to Ukrainian journalists or Ukrainian fans. I have no idea whether you did. There was a few Ukrainians actually who, um, in the media who travelled behind me. They were sitting in the row behind me actually, so um, it was safe to say they... Uh, they, they lost their inhibitions at, um, when that goal went in um, towards the end, but um, that was brilliant. I mean, I was surprised, actually, even just walking, walking to Hamden, you could see, um, I mean, I've seen a few, like, there's, there's a fairly good size of Swedish population in Glasgow. There's a few guys in the Swedish kilts, uh, <laughs> and uh, there's like, a few Ukrainians who had clearly um, got the memo as well, but there was actually quite a decent travelling support, and over in that far corner, you know, they ended up all sort of congregating. I mean, I think they were technically supposed to, but um, you know it was great to see that. It was great to see that at the end because, as you say, like you're sort of detached from it a bit, apart from when it is at Wembley or or when it's been at Hamden. Um, sadly, no longer. But um, you know, Ukraine were. Um, I did. There's a great travelling support, and to see that sort of burst of emotion at the end was was brilliant. So, did they? After the game, give you any indication of what they're expecting against England? I mean, Shevchenko obviously spoke about the fact that England have so much strength and depth and that, you know, there's probably a variety of ways that they could set up against England. So, um, you know, I think I think the interesting thing for England looking at Ukraine is that, you know, they're starting 11 against Sweden. You've got, like, eight of the players all playing Ukraine still. So, to a large extent, they will be an unknown quantity to, to a lot of fans. But... Um, in terms of England, I think, you know, the players will be well known to them and, and Shevchenko, but uh, I would imagine they're going to stick with that system that they used against Sweden. That would seem the most likely thing to me. I'm guessing as well that now there'll be... Do Ukraine become the, the Scottish uh, people's side? Because they, because they played at Hamden, presumably. I mean, that's... that's. Oh, yeah. That's it. We really look after those who have visited the, the <laughs> National Stadium fondly. Um <laughs> But uh, I know I think there's um I don't know how to put this diplomatically. I without saying anybody about England, I think there is a um there's a groundswell of um support for for Ukraine after the after the, the victory. But um you know I think to be honest, I said this last time was I don't think there's a big thing against the players or Southgate like for Scotland most Scotland. It's not really the team. It's more like just the circus that goes around it. Like um you know. I think I think a lot of the, the things is like the half time having to listen to like England um England interviews every every time you try to watch like a, another game. I think that's the um the thing that really bugs people. Um not me clearly as you can tell, but <laughs> you know, I don't I'll be honest, I don't think Ukraine are gonna upset England, but um I don't think it'll be a walk in the park either. Um because they're quite a 
you know, they're, they're competitive teams. So, um, and obviously in the quarterfinals. Just one final thing on Zinchenko because it's kind of easy of the of the British media to focus, uh, English media, if you want to focus on Zinchenko, just because he's a, a Manchester City. In the same way, you kind of focus on Yarmolenko a little bit. But I think in in your article, did, did you describe him as the son of Ukraine? Is that is that how they they view him? Well, I think I think so because I mean, like the reason they play him usually play a sort of four three three and put him in the middle is obviously because he is probably the best player. So um, they obviously try to maximise that. But you know, being shunted at left wing back is probably nowhere you would want your main playmaker. But they managed to make it work because, as I say, they tried to get it to him as often as possible. Ah, you could see that when they did the, the thunder clap at the end. Um, um, actually brought back memories of Iceland, so we might be seeing that again on Friday. But um, the, uh, the, there was him, obviously, Shevchenko, who I imagine is a, is a, a god over there. Um, and then, obviously, you had um, you had Dovbik as well, who, who got the winner at the end. So, you know, it did lack a wee bit up front, so it'll be interesting to know whether he starts, actually, because it was a Ukrainian podcast um, based in London, I think, and they were... They've been banging on about him for, <laughs> for a couple of weeks now, so it'll be interesting to see whether that goal gets him in. But nah, Zinchenko is clearly the the poster boy, I think. Uh, you could see how much it means to him. Like, you, you see that Man City, just how you know passionate and aggressive he is for, for being quite a compact um, player. But no, he's um no, he was really he was really impressive again. This is a paid advertisement from Better Health Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stressors, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's betterhel dot com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. So before we get on to uh, the teams that you three are going to select, let's just look at some of the the great articles that are on The Athletic. I'd like to point people towards uh, James Horncastle's article on uh, the relationship between Mancini and Viali, which is just a beautiful, beautiful article uh, that made me well up, actually, as I was reading it. So I, I, I heartily suggest that... Uh, you you go and read that at some point. And remember, you can subscribe for just £1 a month at the moment uh, by heading to theathletic.com slash England pod, theathletic.com slash England pod, uh, and you get all the articles for £1 a month. What's caught your eye, Flo? I really like Jordan's piece from that Ukraine game. Uh, I thought it was, there was some really mm. nice insight because... He was he reflected on the fact that Ukraine have been kind of inconsistent with the way they performed and the way that Shevchenko set them up. So that's going to be really hard for Southgate to prepare the team for because you kind of don't know which Ukraine is going to turn up. 
Uh, with your, your United head on, Adam, are you going for Laurie's piece on where Manchester United will play Jaden Sancho? Um, yes, because you're not going to find out with England um, at, at this rate. <laughs> <laughs> it, I have to say, it feels very... Look, I know they've been after Sancho for ages and, and I'm doing this tongue-in-cheek, but it does feel very United that their transfer policy is so far involved buying someone from England who hasn't <laughs> even played and, a, and looking at a French centre-half who had an absolute... Who looked every inch a typical United centre-half yeah. when he played for France against Switzerland. Funny, the other night. talking to um, someone near Real Madrid last week and they were saying that Real Madrid were hoping Varane had a fantastic tournament so it would create an auction for him. Um, and and now, now you're actually struggling to um, convince teams to meet uh, anywhere near the asking price that Madrid have set out. Um, yeah, that was an interesting piece by Laurie on, on Sancho, who I did, you know, I agree, tongue-in-cheek, but I, I think it is a fantastic, exciting signing for United to have Greenwood, Rashford, Sancho. This isn't a Manchester United podcast. I need to stop talking about United. Um, but also, uh, we've also got a piece about uh, what went on with the French team um, over the past. And the mums. And the mums, um, which is amazingly entertaining. But there's also some like some really interesting context to it that you wouldn't expect, with particularly in regards to Rabiot's mum, stuff that you wouldn't necessarily... No, you know, when you first see that story, you think, oh, my God, it's just a story about a really involved, crazy mum. And then the background is, you know, her husband had locked in syndrome. She was single handedly bringing up the kids by herself. She personally negotiated Rabio's, you know, first few contracts as a professional player. And you just realise that there's always context and background, however chaotic it may seem. But a lot of info there also about uh, Pogba's role, about Deschamps' future and also the impact that bringing Benzema had on the sort of general harmony of the squad as well. Jack? Yeah, that's a great piece, that France piece. Um, I was going to recommend something. I've just been really enjoying Michael Cox's uh, England analysis all the way through. Like every single England game, he brings quite a unique eye to it, which I don't really think there's anything quite like that out there elsewhere. Um, and every game he'll, um, you know, he'll pick something out which you wouldn't have necessarily noticed, whether in this case it was, you know, England's the way that Shaw and Trippier helped to pin back the German wing-backs, which was obviously integral to how England played, and the very kind of aggressive defence that England had against Germany. So I, I really, every time I read Coxie, I learn something. So, um, yeah, we would definitely recommend that. Well, let's start with you then, Jack, for the for the starting 11. Uh, bearing in mind, so you've read all of Michael Cox's stuff. Jordan highlighted there that Ukraine play or have played three at the back. So do you match Ukraine up? What are you doing? No, so I'm going back to the 4-2-3-1, which I think is the best way for England to create chances against more defensive opposition. Uh, I think the defence is easy. Uh, I've got Pickford, Walker, Stones, Maguire, Shaw. Then I've got Henderson and Rice uh, sitting. So I'm resting Calvin Phillips. That The next three is interesting. I've definitely got Sterling. I've definitely got Mount back in. And then one extra spot, a few different candidates. So I'm going to go for Grealish over Foden and Saka just to reward Grealish for his sub-appearance the other day. And then obviously Harry Kane up front. Okay. Uh, is, is, by leaving Foden and Phillips out, is that partly because of their yellow cards? In part, yeah. I also... I love Foden. I've not been massively convinced with him so so far in this tournament, his first two games. I think he's a brilliant individual player, but I don't think he quite clicks into this England system yet. Okay. Uh, Flo? So I'm going to stick with the 3-4-3, three, three, but it's going to be more of a three than the sort of five that we saw a lot against Germany out of possession. So hopefully it, it won't be too defensive. Um, 
sticking with the sort of three slash five that played the other day. So Pickford, Walker, Stones, Maguire, then Trippier, Mount, Rice, Shaw. I'm going to keep Rice in despite the yellow card, but I do agree with Jack that I imagine Henderson might come in. Um, We haven't really seen much of him yet. And this is kind of the perfect game for him to be that kind of center linchpin in midfield and and keep people's heads basically. And then like Jack, I'm going to bring Grealish in. I'm... (sighs) I love him as this impact sub and I am a little bit, not worried, but I do think actually it's just that, is that the best way to use him? Is to get everyone chanting his name, him to know that, you know, he's got to come on and change the game and then just kind of drop him in. And actually it'll be quite interesting to see what would happen if he did start. Um, So uh, the front three is going to be Sterling, Kane and Grealish. And Adam, now remember Jordan off, off air, before I spoke, said you were talking about rotating players, already getting ahead of yourself. So, uh, what have you done with your starting eleven? I think it's quite logical. If you know, if you take the view that England are on paper significantly better than Ukraine, and that England, in the best case scenario, could have three incredibly emotional football matches over the course of a week with the possibilities of extra time in at least one of those. Yeah, you know, I don't think you can just go through that thinking we're going to use 14 play- you know, 14 players because Southgate's never going to make five subs. I'm going, yeah, so I'll go Pickford in goal, then I would go Walker, Stones. Oh, would- oh Tyro mm. Mings could be coming back here. Mm. Well, I just I just want, you know, Maguire, you know, it's a, having just come back from a, an injury to play possibly five games in the space of two and a bit weeks. It's a lot. And he's on a yellow. He's on a yellow. I can't drop Harry Maguire, but I, I do think that's a legitimate conversation that they will be having internally around, you know, what his fitness is like. Luke Shaw, I always think he's best playing as much as possible, plays his best football when he plays back-to-back. I would also go Henderson and Rice, because um, I don't. I think Henderson and Phillips are a bit similar in that they both like to, you know, to roam a little bit from that position. Rice, you need that, that stability. I'm then going Foden, <laughs> Groom, Foden, Grealish, and Sterling, and Kane up front. I just think you know, Mount's obviously been away from the group for eight days or so. It's not his fault. Um, but I, d- I didn't think he was, uh, contrary to what a lot of other people seem to think, I, I thought Foden was better than Mount in the game against Scotland. I thought he looked more likely to, to really do something. And we've got to, I don't know, I've got the Grealish, there's so much hype around him. He's got to start at some point, doesn't he? Otherwise, n- there'll be no one left on Twitter to, to send Jack abuse for, for not trusting him enough. Uh, right, we got that. that. That was nearly Garrido-esque in the length <laughs> of time it took you to explain your starting eleven. Uh, Flo, Adam, Jack, thank you. That's it for now. Dan back on Sunday with all the reaction uh, from the Ukraine game. Uh, still as positive as ever, Flo? Yeah, definitely. Leave it there. Bye. We've been so positive, we can't lose now, can we, surely? (laughs) 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 The Athletic.